want to spend some time tonight taking a look at the Christmas story out of Luke chapter 2. If you want to follow along in your Bibles, we'll be there in Luke 2. If not, it'll, it'll be on the screens. How many put a nativity together this year? I'll call it, my wife tells me I pronounce it wrong. How many put a nativity together this year? <laughs> How many have come, come buy one? You've seen one in a store and, you, and you, you're familiar with what we're talking about, the, the little wooden barn and all the figurines. And, well, I want to take a look at this story in Luke chapter 2. And maybe uh, we'll just go through it systematically and talk about what's going on in this story at this time. If we start in Luke chapter 2, verse 1, how many enjoyed, by the way, the kids in that really down, quiet adult moment, and they're just back there just having a party, having all kinds of fun? Yeah. <laughs> I think God has a sense of humor at times. He's like, you're all so serious. Let me show you what it looks like to have fun. At the time of the Roman Emperor Augustus, at that time, he decrees a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. So what's going on here, if you're familiar with uh, history and the, and the culture and the time, uh, Israel is under Roman occupation. And Rome uh, is a, a, an intelligent occupier, is the way we would say it, that Rome doesn't come in and eradicate things. They actually allow them to leave their religious systems in place. Um, the reason they do this is they've figured out that if we... If we allow people to have a bit of their normal life as they did before, sooner or later they'll forget we're here, and then they'll just go back to doing what we need them to do, which is produce. And so the Roman Caesar is Augustus at this time. Now Augustus is referred to, the Romans will refer to all their Caesars with a term. The Greek term is curios, and it, it honestly meant Lord of all. They believed that their, their Caesars were gods. Now, it's a polytheistic culture, so they had lots of different gods, but they believed that their Caesar was a god. So this Caesar says, it's time to measure the empire. I want to know how many people I have. I want to know what my production. He's more than likely doing it for economic means. He's wanting to figure out what kind of revenue stream he can depend on. And when a Caesar would say this, it was different than when a local governor would say it. When a local governor would tell them to... to register, they would just go to that local region and register. But when a Caesar said it, they had to actually make a journey back to the birthplace of their family. And so we pick up with our story with Mary and Joseph here. Because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee, and he took with him Mary, his fiance, who was obviously pregnant by this time. How many have ever met someone who's obviously pregnant? <laughs> so what's going on here is that's important for us to know is that this is a, what we would term an honor and shame culture. This is the, the culture in, in Israel, the Hebrew culture. It's more Middle Eastern. It's honor, shame. What that means is the number one thing you protect in your life is your honor and the honor of your family name. The thing you avoid at all costs is shame, drawing shame to yourself. Joseph and Mary are not married. They're what's called betrothed in the scriptures. It's similar to engagement in our culture, a little more binding. There's already been a transaction of finances taking place. He's already legally her caretaker, but under Jewish law, they were not to consummate that marriage. They were not to have any physical contact until the actual wedding process happens. So you can imagine them making this journey. Now, the journey from where they lived to where they were going was 86 miles on foot. 
The average person at this time would travel at max eight miles per day. That was factored on a, on a soldier. They figured their troops could travel eight miles a day. So this is a three to four week journey. How many ladies have ever been pregnant in this room? How many think that, that when your hubby says, hey, we're going to go walk to Colorado Springs in your third trimester, you're like, yep, that sounds like a total plan. Let's do it. So that's kind of the lay of the land. That's what's going on here. And Joseph and Mary, but you can imagine in this honor-shame culture that as they're going through, they're, they're probably receiving those looks, you know, that look of, so you're not married, but you're pregnant. Can you imagine being Joseph, guys, and your answer being, yeah, dude, the baby's not mine, it's God's. <laughs> Just imagine the way people would look at you. It says, and while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her first child, a son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the village inn. So most of us have seen a nativity set and we, we look at the, what looks like a, a poorly constructed barn. And there's, you know, there, there's wise men and there's cows and there's a sheep or two. And there's an angel that you can't figure out where he's supposed to be because you're pretty sure he's supposed to be in the sky, but you don't know how to suspend him. So you just sit him far enough off in the table that he can kind of have a good vantage point of everything that's going on. But what I want to do is dive into what's going on here in this text that I think is incredibly important for us to know. First of all, we need to understand how a home was constructed. It'll help us understand really what's, what's going on for them. The homes in this time, they're a fairly hilly country. And how many have ever seen a daylight basement? You know, walkout basement, something like that. Woodchuck to gray squirrel. Are we awake? We good? We've seen it? Yeah, okay. They would dig back into the hillside. They would dig out basically a cave, and then they would construct the first floor, and they would build a great room, and that was where the family would live, and underneath that floor would be a cave, similar to uh, maybe a, a basement, but it had an open front, and this is where their animals would, would dwell at night, the reason that being not a super uh, advanced culture economically, uh, they're mostly going to have livestock just to be able to survive, and so they would pull the animals in at night for two reasons, one, to protect them from what could happen if they're out in the fields, A, and B, the animals would provide a measure of warmth, and they would help make a good smell in the house. There was a third room that they would build in their houses. The great room is where the family would live, but because it's an honor-shame culture, hospitality is one of the highest honors in the culture. So much so that in this culture, if someone who was your enemy came to your door and knocked on the door and said, I need a place to stay tonight, they had a way of handling it. They would say, while you are my enemy today, tonight you'll be my friend, tomorrow you'll be my enemy. They would allow them to come in because hospitality was just this established idea, so much so that they treated it as if it was law. That was a room off the back of the house. There's a word for that room that was used in the Greek. It was called a kataluma. That's the Greek word for it. It meant guest room. And so what we have here is a story that if you're like me and you read the stories, is Mary and Joseph, they come into town and there's no room for them at the local Motel 6. Because it's an inn, and that's what we think of. How many have ever thought of it as an inn like that? It's interesting, though, because the word in the Greek that Luke, the writer of this passage, will use here is kataluma. Nowhere else in the scripture is the word kataluma translated as a commercial inn. In fact, the word kataluma is only translated as a guest room. There's a different word they use for commercial inn. It's pandokion. Luke will use this word twice in his writings. So what we have here is a bit of a concern with how it's been translated. Most scholars believe it's been translated this way because 
There was a problem in making it smooth in English. Now we're getting somewhere, so I'm laying some groundwork. You still good? You staying with me? We're good? All right, let's go back to our story. She gave birth to her first son, wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth, laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the village inn. That night, some shepherds were in their fields outside the village, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them, and they were terribly frightened. So this is where our story gets interesting. Now, if we study the first part of the chapter, we, we, there's a phrase that says that all, all were required to come back to their homelands. So Joseph and Mary are both from this place called Bethlehem. It's said that they're both from the lineage of David. So how many, how many are familiar with who King David was in the scriptures? King David had a, a, lot of, a lot of family, large family. So here's what's going on. Everybody in the empire is required to come back to this place. So there's a bit of first person in the family there gets to stay in the Cataluma. And you can imagine that David's family being big, there's probably more than one or two family members living in Bethlehem, so there's several opportunities to stay. But what happens here, this phrase, there's no room for them in the inn, lets us know that by the time Joseph and Mary got there, their entire family had already populated all the guest rooms in the other family homes. They were out of space. Now, some would say, well, they got turned away for shame. If you study the culture, that actually would have been, it would have been more shaming to the family to turn them away than it would have been for them to refuse them. To say, we won't let you in because you're pregnant before marriage would have brought greater shame on the family because they would have violated hospitality, which is one of their highest orders. So from a logic point of view, that can't be the understanding. So Mary and Joseph arrive late. They have no place to go. Now there's a place in Bethlehem called Migdal Eder. Migdal Eder is an important place. It's connected to the family line of David. Joseph's in the family line of David. This would give Mary and Joseph a familial right to, to knock on the door of Migdal Eder. It's a tower. According to the book of Micah, it's known as the Tower of the Flock. So they would knock on this door and say, we have no place to stay, and would receive a place to stay. The other reason why we know they probably didn't go to their family is under Levitical law, Mary was getting ready to give birth. That means Levitical law, the moment she gave birth, she was going to ceremonially, she was going to have to put the house into ceremonial purification, which meant she would shut down the entire events that were going on. Everybody connected to the house would have to stop, go outside the city, and get purified. This was Levitical law. So she would not have done that. A woman would never have done that to her family. They would have always pulled away someplace else that wasn't going to put the family in difficulty. So Mary and Joseph are here. They're, we, most scholars believe they're at this place called Migdal Eder. What, what, what's the deal with Migdal Eder? So remember, we just read about shepherds. That night, shepherds were in their fields outside the village, guarding the flocks of sheep. We read this in English, and it's just, we just think about, like, if you go a little bit east on Highway 14 and you see all the sheep pens, that's what comes to our mind. And you knew, if you have your windows down in your car, that's what comes to your mind. But that's not what's going on here at all. Migdal Eder was, uh, was known for something very specific. It was where the temple flocks were raised. These were the, these were the lambs that the priests, so if you understand Levitical priesthood, they would rotate their positions. So you might serve in the temple for three months and then you might get a few weeks off and then you might serve someplace else because they would just rotate. 
These are temple shepherds that are out in the field. These are priests who've been trained in the scriptures. There's something else about Migdal Eder that's incredibly interesting. The reason they would raise these flocks was for a very specific purpose. In Levitical law, two times a day they would offer a sacrifice. The sacrifice had to be a lamb. It's called a paschal lamb or sacrificial lamb. Some of us are familiar with Passover, same idea. These lambs had to be very, very carefully raised. They had to be very protected. They were, they were raised on the best fields. They were watched over very cautiously. And when it came time for them to birth, these shepherds would bring these lambs into the, the bottom floor of Migdal Eater, which was called the birthing room. It was ceremonially clean. It was prepped and it was ready. It was a place where blood could be spilled and it was not going to cause any purification rites to need to be called on because that's what it was designated for. They would bring these use in there. They would birth them. And at the moment they would birth them, we'd do something amazing. As soon as they, how many have ever seen rodeo before? You know, when they rope a calf and they jump off the horse and they wind them up really quick. So they, why? Because the legs can't move. And that way they have to, they calm down. This is what they would do to these sheep, these baby lambs as they were born. The first thing they would do is they would grab them and they would grab their legs and pull them tight to their body. And they would bind them with what was called swaddling strips. From this point, they would take this lamb, they would lay it into a limestone rock. This limestone rock had a depression that had been carved out of it. If you've ever worked with limestone, you know it's a fairly soft rock and you can push it around pretty easy. Interestingly enough, if we study history, there's a Jewish historian in the late 1800s in Alfred Edersheim. He will report at Migdal Eder in the, in the birthing room at Migdal Eder, there's a limestone rock. The limestone rock was known throughout Israel. It had a name. Anybody want to guess what the name was? The manger. If you read this story in the Greek instead of the English, the angel says this phrase. You will find a baby lying in the manger. There's a a single word in the Greek that does not get passed through in English. Most scholars believe it didn't get translated through because it doesn't read right. If you don't know the, the actual details of the event and you would look at it and say, that's bad syntax, it should be lying in a manger because we want to make it a specific place. Now, if some of you that are skeptics are like, I don't know, just stay with me. <laughs> don't be afraid. He said, I bring you good news of great joy for everyone. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born tonight in Bethlehem, the city of David. And this is how you will recognize him. You will find a baby lying in a manger wrapped snugly in strips of cloth. Suddenly, the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God. Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to all whom God favors. And when the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, come on, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see the wonderful thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they ran to the village and found Mary and Joseph, and there was the baby lying in the manger. Don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy. I love this where the angel says, and this is how you will recognize him. Because this is what, this, if you look at scripture, this is the key that unlocks this entire passage. This is how you will recognize him. You will find a baby. Now, he describes the baby prior to this. He says, 
I bring you tidings of good news for great joy for everyone. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born tonight in Bethlehem, the city of David. These three words, which seem to us in English to be adjectives that just make the story more beautiful, are actually really important words because this first one that he uses, the Savior, this is an important word because the priests would have heard this word differently. They would have heard this word as Yeshua, the Deliverer the one who's going to rescue us from our current occupation. They would have heard this as the one that's coming, sweeping in to fix things for us. The next phrase, the Messiah. This was a word they had been longing for, waiting for, because they knew the the Messiah would be the redeemer. He would be the one that was going to come in once for all time and deal with sin. The Lord, this next phrase, is the word kyrios. It's the same word the Romans used for their Caesars. What they would have heard in this moment is that a new king has come, that God was on earth. Notice that the angel does not give the shepherds an address of where to go find this baby. Can you imagine? If I just tell you, hey, there's, there's, there's $10,000 buried in Fort Collins. Go. You're like, great. What street? Yeah, it's somewhere on the west side. He gives them nothing. But he says, this is how you will recognize him. The language he uses assumes they know where they're going. Why would they know where they're going? Because these shepherds have been there before. These shepherds have been in this room before. You see, this room would have been a place that Mary could have given birth and it wouldn't have affected anybody. She would have been able to come into this birth. So I want you to understand what the angel says to them. You will find the Lamb of God, the sacrifice for humanity, the King, the Deliverer. You will find him wrapped in the same swaddling cloths you're used to using. It will look to you just like a sacrificial lamb. He'll be laying on the manger in this depression. Your job is to look at him because that was their job, was to inspect the lambs and to make sure they were without spot, without blemish. So we see them as soon as the angel goes, they hightail it and they head straight for the place they're going to. They know where they're going already. There was no, rep, there's no record of them coming into town going, hey, have you heard about Joseph and Mary? Where are they at? You never know. This is a time of chaos in the culture. There's lots of tra- travelers moving through. They just go str- straight to this place. Why do we tell this story? To debunk the nativity? No. Because I want us to realize something that for all these details to come into play correctly, 4,000 plus years have gone by, prophecy after prophecy after prophecy, for it to all align perfectly at the precise moment is incredible, is it not? You see, these shepherds, when they heard these phrases, when they heard the angel make the declaration, they had been studied in the scriptures. They knew what to look for. They would have heard Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 7. We read it this evening. All right, then the Lord himself will choose a sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child and she'll give birth to a son and you'll call him Emmanuel. God is with us. 
They would have heard chapter 9 in their heads. For a child is born to us, a son is given. The government will rest on his shoulders, and these will be his royal titles. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. His ever-expanding peaceful government will never end. He will rule forever with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David. The passionate commitment of the Lord Almighty will guarantee this. And they would have understood immediately, God is on earth. Not the concept of God. God is on earth. And we're going to go find him. For me, it blows my mind at the incredible detail. But it's interesting, if you look at the, this Isaiah passage that I just read, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, Emmanuel. It is very truly said that a king is being reestablished. A king has come. This is the announcement that comes from heaven. Curios is on earth, a new king. But where have we ever found a king that when he announces, when the proclamations are made about who he is, that this king announces this kind of title? Every single one of these titles, wonderful counselor, it's an amazing idea. It means miraculous advisor. So what he's saying is the miraculous advisor has come. A miraculous advisor is one who walks alongside of others and gives them the needed counsel to make it through tough decisions. This is what he says about himself through scripture. Mighty God, it's a very specific phrase. It was a military phrase, this word mighty, and it meant the champion of a regiment. If you know the story of David and Goliath, Goliath was the one they would call mighty because he was the one that would rise up and defend the culture. And this is what God says about himself, I will be the great defender for you whenever you face something. Everlasting Father, no beginning, no end, perpetual. I love this one because I think it's maybe the hardest one for us to understand. It means benevolent protector. It's the purest picture of father that we can find. It's the one that watches over and cares for. Who's never going to pull away in any situation. And what he says is, I've always been here. I'll always be here to do this for you. And then prince of peace. This word prince here means the one who has the authority to dispense something. That's the word prince. Peace. The word means oneness. It's the idea of being connected and joined to oneness, completion without fragmentation. Restoration is hardwired in this word peace. And then I love this phrase that Isaiah 7 says. His name will be called Emmanuel for he's God with us. Because I think in this phrase, the heart of God for humanity is revealed more than any other. That God's passionate desire is to be with us. It's a relational term. It is not to be over us. It is not to be around us. It is to be with us. This time of year, we're with our families, and we all understand it's very different than just having family. I can have family that live all over the globe, but when my family's with me, we're together. We're sharing life. This is the statement God makes about himself. I want to be known by you for these titles, this wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, and I want you to know that because I want to be with you. I want to do life with you. You see, for me, if I look at all this story, look at all these crazy details, it causes me to ask a question. If God can take 4,000 plus years of history and arrange it into a micro moment like this, can't I trust him with my life? What in the world could I face that he can't overcome? What problem will I face that he can't advise me in? 
What situation will I face? What addiction will I face that he can't stand up and walk me through it? What loneliness, what heartache of soul am I ever going to encounter that he's not big enough to say, I can protect you and walk with you and nurture you through this process? We've been looking at John 3 a lot through this Advent season for God so deeply in love with humanity gave his son. And it goes on and says that none would perish but all would find everlasting life. This everlasting life, we looked at it yesterday morning. It is the idea of being connected to a richness and a vitality and a fullness of life. I absolutely love that that's God's statement to humanity. My heart for you is I want you to have the fullness of life. I want you to have the richness of life. I want you to have vitality in your life. And see, we're so good at painting a picture of a God who would stand aloof and never receive us. But I love what the scriptures say. Therefore, because of Christ and our faith in him, not because of me and my life, but because of Christ and our faith in him, we can now come fearlessly before the throne of God, guaranteed a glad welcome. Nobody on the planet should be afraid to stand before God because Jesus already made a way. Because of the gift given in the manger, the sacrificial lamb that was laid down by God onto the earth, God's statement to humanity is, I love you, I want to walk with you, I want to do life with you, I want to talk with you, I want to be with you in every aspect of who you are. 